0: This is your host, Tammy Turner, and you are now listening to The Tierra Talk Show. We bring you rare interviews with the makers of Disney magic. Whether they be singers, actors, imagineers, animators, they've all made their mark on the Disney name. To find out more about the show and other episodes, head to our official website at www.thetierratalkshow.com. Be sure to look below at the show notes in the show more section for links to our Twitter and Facebook pages, including videos and websites mentioned in the following interview. Photos and audio clips that are featured in the show belong to their rightful owners and are used for educational purposes only. All guests' opinions are theirs and theirs alone and do not represent the opinions of the Tierra Talk Show or the host. The Tierra Talk Show is not associated with the Disney Company. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's episode. And from all of us here at the Tierra Talk Show, have a hoop-de-doo day. to welcome this week's Tiara talk show guest, writer, producer, and director Jeff Blythe to the show. Welcome, Jeff.
1: Good to be with you, Tammy. So
0: you have worked on several projects for the Walt Disney Company that have appeared all around the world in various theme parks, and one of your earliest pieces was found in Epcot, originally titled Wonders of China, and it was updated in 2003 and renamed Reflections of China. And I have to say it's probably one of my favorite films that has ever been shown in Epcot, Um, and I, I cannot imagine if it was as difficult to make um, it was beautiful to watch, but was it really difficult to receive permission to film in certain locations?
1: Well, you know, the the first one, Wonders of China, was made uh, during 1981 and uh, the early part of 1982, and that was uh, not long after um, the Cultural Revolution, which had just uh, you know been devastating for China, uh, and and so and in fact, while we were there they were still undergoing some of the, you know, trials of people, uh, you know, the Gang of Four were, you know, there were, some of them were still on trial during that time. So it was a very, very different China than when we came back to make reflections of China so many years later. China had, had just changed enormously. But in the early days, um, they had no frame of reference for what we were doing. They didn't even know what a theme park was. Um, <laughs> You know when you know when you travel around the uh, you know the United states and and you, you say you're making a film for a theme park if if somebody has never even been to a theme park, they at least know what it is they have you know they've got county fairs and state fairs and and other kinds of uh exhibitions and things that they could at least relate to China didn't have any of that, and so just the concept of making a film for a theme park was pretty foreign to them. And then when you combine that with a with an unusual film format where the camera can see, you know, in 360 degrees, they were they were actually really scared of this camera. I mean, they, they there were times when they thought it could see around mountains and over, you know, around, behind buildings and, and, and I mean, they just they didn't conceive of what it was until we could go there and actually start to to take pictures and Show them what we could see and what we couldn't see. And um, so, initially, when we were trying to get permission for locations, they would say, Well, we don't want you filming in that province because the province next door has a lot of military installations. And we don't, you know, and it was like, What? You know, I'm going to be 100 miles from that. They go, Yeah, but your camera, it sees in all directions. And I mean, they were they were literally that afraid of it. And so as, as the production went on, we we kind of you know won them over, and we got to the point where they were you know, they weren't afraid of it anymore. They were allowing us to, to film in some areas that, that had been originally you know they'd said no, you can't go there. And in fact, one of my favorite shots from the uh, from Wonders of China, which if you'd ever seen that film, it's got uh, these water buffalo and and you know people working these fields. As it, as it turns out, it was uh, uh, water chestnuts that they were growing there. It sort of looks like rice, but the, the the people were working this field. That shot was actually on an army base. Wow. So that gives you an idea how far we came in terms of, you know, after getting permissions and, and finally getting them to understand what it was that we were doing. And, you know, there were other things that we did, like, for example, we were filming at the Temple of Heaven, and uh, we, you know, we we had permission. We we got everything ready, and then the Americans. There were only uh, three of us besides me on the crew. We all just sort of stopped what we were doing and started cleaning up. And we were picking up cigarette butts and paper wrappers. And oh. and I got a you know a, a, the, a cloth and a bucket of water and was washing down the doors. And you know they they hadn't been dusted in in years. And oh. you know, the Chinese crew is looking at us like, what What are you doing? <laughs> And and we're saying, we want it to look as good as, as it could possibly look. And I said, you know, if, if I had paint, I'd fix these patches in the door and whatever, you know, and, and it was like, oh, okay. And so after we were there for, you know, months, you know, you, we'd be getting ready to film and the Chinese crew would be going around picking up cigarette butts and paper wrappers and, and bringing us, you know, mops and buckets to clean things up. They Again, they got on board with what it was that we were trying to do, but but it was a. that's what made it difficult, is that there was no frame of reference that they could relate to what we were doing or why we wanted to make a film, how we were going to show it, how it was going to be really the, the face of China for millions of people. You know, 100 million people saw that movie in one theater.
0: And um, I'm just thinking it's 20 years later in 2003 that you've made the original version. Um, what exactly did you add and remove because unfortunately I did not get to see um the original version I was never in the in the Epcot parks until mm-hmm. you know in the 90s but what did you have to change and and was was it more restricted in filming this time
1: No it was much more open uh they they completely understood they had now built their own Circle Vision camera they had you know some of the people the Chinese crew that we had had in the past uh had been making Circle Vision movies for China Um, so they completely understood it was a much much easier process and you know of course they had their own theme parks now and and uh, so we were we kind of hit the ground running in in coming back there the uh, the situation with the studio was that they did not want to fund a completely new film so the idea was well how best to go back shoot new material find outtakes from, um, scenes that, you know, that we had filmed the first time, but didn't use. And there were very, very few of those. I, I used almost everything that I could shoot in China from the first film. I, I used it in, in Wonders of China. Uh, but, but there were a few things, particularly when there were aerial shots and stuff like that. There were, there were some scenes at the far end of the Great Wall that, uh, had not made it into the film. And, and so, um, we were able to go through and, and pick and choose and sort of rebuild the film with a fair amount of new material, but also reorganized it. And, uh, you know, one of the things that was that was a, a real change, uh, there's a scene in the original film where we're just going down a, a, a street uh, in, in Beijing, and there's, you know, a zillion bicycles all around us going in both directions, and there's just a handful of cars. Well, now it's the exact opposite in China. It's all automobiles and a handful of bicycles. Wow. So, you know, that was, a, that was an enormous change, but it also meant that, that scenes like that had to be replaced. Um, you know, there were scenes that we did in, in places like, um, uh, you know, the Forbidden City, where we tried our hardest at the time to not date the film, but nonetheless, you know, when you when you bring in, you know, 50, 60 extras, some of them in those days were wearing Mao jackets, which are fairly distinctive, and we try to keep that to a minimum, try to put them in, in much more, you know, nondescript clothing. Um, but nonetheless, you know, there were scenes with people walking around in Mao jackets. Well, that dates the film immediately right there. So we were, you know, very much cognizant of that when we came back to try to, you know, really make an updated version of China to, to you know, because that was that's that was stuff that the Chinese started complaining about pretty early on. The film was playing at Epcot and, and they were saying, uh, you know, that, you know, we've we've changed a lot since then. <laughs> Would you like to come back and redo it? It's very expensive to go off and do these kinds of films. And it's it's a very big investment for the studio. Um, when you, you know, uh, do something that's going to be in a theme park. And the timing had to be right for Disney. And and when they finally got to that point where they said, yes, we will go off and do it, the Chinese were thrilled.
0: It must have been extra hard because you have a main character who is telling the story of the film, Key Luke, who was the actor, and he died right before you started reshooting some scenes. Um, How did you work around him then?
1: Well, uh, Key Luke was the voice. Of the character, the actor on camera uh, was a was a Chinese actor uh, that we had hired, and he was just way too old by the time we came back to be able to recreate his role. So, but we wanted to use some of that stuff, uh, you know, of, of that he had done, and so what that meant was finding another actor who looked like that actor back in those days. So we did, you know, makeup and hair and wardrobe tests. To try to find somebody to match but because Key Luke had passed away, uh, what that meant was we had to you know bring in a new voice and uh, so we did you know voice casting to, to find somebody to be the new voice of the character.
0: but it looks wonderful. I, I would never know the difference between the, the two actors. It looks very good
1: <laughs> Well thank you it was uh, you know it was sort of interesting when the, the, the actor the Chinese actor that we hired for the first one, spoke uh, you know decent English. he had He had some funny rhythms to it, some patterns. It was That was the struggle that we had initially was was trying to match the, the the rhythms of the speech of the original actor. So when we came back to make the second film, I, I you know didn't want that same problem and, and and I talked with our Chinese producers, and I said, "Look, we need to find somebody who looks like our original character." But I, but he needs to speak English. And uh, they said, Oh, no problem. We'll have a casting thing and, and whatever. Well, they bring in this guy, and he looked very much like the character. He was, he was, you know, the best that we had. And he didn't speak a word of English. Oh no, <laughs> not a word of English. And we said, Well, <laughs> how are we going to do this? Because he's got some long speeches. And they said, Oh well, we're we're going to we've we've got a way that we do that. And essentially what it is, they take the script, the English version of the script, and they break it down into syllables, and then they find Chinese words that have a similar sound. So what that means is that the guy is actually speaking gibberish. It has no meaning whatsoever, because he might be saying, Who Orange, coat hanger, doorknob, waves, words like this. And, and, and yet, when you put them together, bec- the, the Chinese starts to sound like, welcome to China, or something. And so, he's speaking gibberish, but we're trying to get it to sound like it's English. Now, we know at the time, it's all going to be thrown away, and we're going to put in the voice later, but he has to be making the right mouth movements. So we're trying to get him to look like he's speaking English, but he's actually speaking gibberish. Well, the problem with that, of course, is you give him a long speech, and it's just more nonsense words to memorize. And there's you know, there's nothing in any one word that helps you remember the next word. There's no connections between them. They're just random Chinese words. So that was... A real struggle,
0: but you got through it, and it came out very nicely. <laughs>
1: well, thank you very much. That's the whole point—is that you know when you're done with all of these, nobody cares about the behind-the-scenes troubles. They just want to—they want no, the I film love, to work. I
0: love hearing about. No, I love hearing about it. Um, because usually Disney doesn't give. Any blooper reels? I love blooper reels. I love seeing <laughs> what is uh, what it takes to make a film. So to see on your YouTube page, um, which anybody you can probably look up and just type in "Reflections of China Behind the Scenes," mm-hmm. um, I just thought that was just wonderful to look at. What how you were scouting. Uh, for film locations and um, and finally finding these places and uh, just looking around. It's just uh, it, and just looking at the camera. For goodness sakes, that camera is huge and just. It's a monster. I, I can't believe it. I uh, was it just as big as it was in eighty two as it was in two thousand three or were there changes? Yeah, it's uh,
1: it's it's essentially the same camera um, for both films uh, except that the more recent one had uh, a number of of updates and things that we were able to add to it that uh you know I've made uh, I've made nine of these productions and over the years we we kept adding little bits and pieces things to make our life a little easier um you know like a, a like a, there's a rotating tripod head that we use for this there's certain dollies that we've had built that work you know work with this we've added video that we can you know record what we're getting and stuff like that whereas when the first film was made, it was a very, very primitive setup. It just would take pictures, that's all. Very noisy because it's nine cameras that are grinding away all at the same time. You know. So, But it's, it's the exact same photographic process for the second film as it was for the first film. There were many, many locations that I scouted on the first film, which was my first Circle Vision movie, where... You know, you'd say, oh, well, this looks like it's going to be great. You know, we can put the camera here, and, and this is perfect. And then you start to line it up, and you realize, no, that doesn't actually work for 360. Because what happens is you need, you know, while it's 360 degrees all the way around, it's only um, 30 degrees up and down. It's, a, it's like this narrow band. And you'd find locations, but things would be on different levels. And so you'd have like you know this wonderful pagoda here, and then these stairs down to another pagoda. Well, you can't really photograph that very well in circle vision because if you try to tilt the camera, it would be very awkward. And and so you know you basically set the camera up level, and and trying to find things that will fit in that view is very difficult. Like for example, in the in the new film, we have a, you know uh, a scene in Hong Kong, and. Uh, you know, the first thought that most people would have would be, well, gee, you know, you just you go up to the top of Victoria Peak and there'll be a great view of the whole city and it'll be great for 360. Well, no, actually it's not. What you need to do is find a place in the middle of the city. And so we found, it, it, this was a tough one to scout, but we needed to find a, like a, an apartment building or something that we could shoot on the roof that was really located right in the middle so that that 30-degree band encompassed all the buildings all around you. So it was very much involving when you can when you can find the right location. And that's, that's much of the work for, for making one of these kinds of films is knowing the locations that will work for the 360.
0: Around 1989, uh, you released another Circle Vision 360 film uh, that was placed into the Disneyland theme park called American Journeys. How did you become attached to this project? Was it because you were attached to Reflections of China?
1: I had done The Wonders of China, and then I did a film for Tokyo Disneyland called The Eternal Sea, and that was uh, for the opening of Tokyo Disneyland. And then after that film, uh, a friend of mine who had done the, Rick Harper, who had done the French film, he was working on American Journeys, and they had so many locations to shoot across the country that um, he said, I need your help, please come in and, and you know set up a whole second unit of you know another camera and another team and we basically just tore the location list in half and he went off and did his, and I did mine and then in the course of production the script changed. Uh, we had a producer at Disney who said uh, he wanted to take the film in a different direction and that was kind of not what Rick had wanted to do and so Rick left the production. I continued on and had to find a way to sort of incorporate what I had shot with Rick uh, and what this producer wanted and shot some new stuff to tie it all together. And then I ended up writing the, the whole show to tie it all together. There was a time there when it was kind of difficult. It felt like, you know, there were two different movies. There was Rick's vision of the movie and... And then along came this, uh, this new idea, and it really it eliminated some of the stuff that we had already shot together and called for some new material. And I would said, you know, before we go running off and start shooting new material and abandoning old stuff, let me see if I can find that story that will tie it all together. And, and so I was able to salvage um, quite a bit of what Rick and I had already shot and then focus the new material that I went out and got to help sort of bring out the theme that this producer wanted. And so it really was a kind of a synthesis, but I, I just didn't want it to be, you know, it's very expensive and very time consuming to go out and get these shots. Uh, some of them, you know, it's it's like we, we would only get like one shot in a day, but we might end up spending four or five days you know, getting to the location and preparing for it and getting ready to shoot it and then, and then leaving the location. So, um, you know, it, it it's very time consuming and very costly. And so you just don't want to be going out and grabbing shots. You know, it, it, it just doesn't work that way. You, you really have to know how they fit together. Um, and so once we had this new blueprint that was the synthesized version of it, it made it easier to go off and, and, um, and and just shoot what was needed to tie it together.
0: And one of my uh, favorite attractions that you got to work on was From Time to Time, a.k.a. The Timekeeper. That's how I knew it because, again, I never got to Disneyland Paris, which is where it uh, first premiered in 1992. Another Circle Mm -hmm. Vision 360, by the way, for listeners. Um, And then it was added into Magic Kingdom in Orlando, Florida in 94. Um, So this is a very exciting show because it has a very fun storyline involving Jules Verne traveling uh, into the future. He rides a race car, participates in a bobsled race, and flies a- aboard a helicopter, all that good stuff. And um, and then you have the, uh, the auto animatronics that are the robots who are taking Jules on this journey. And I just wanted to know, what was it like shooting this film? Because you had, like, an all-star cast. You know, you had um, Jeremy Irons. A couple of French actors who are very... Uh, famous over in France, um, I can't pronounce their names right, so I don't want to butcher them on the show. Um,
1: well, we had Gerard uh, <laughs> Depardieu come in and, and uh, played a baggage handler at Charles de Gaulle Airport. We had um, Michel Piccoli uh, was playing Jules Verne. We had Nathalie Baye playing Marie Internet. uh Jean Rochefort was uh, playing Louis, her lover. Uh, so yeah, we had, we had um, and Franco Nero uh, played uh, Da Vinci. So, yeah, we, this was, a, this was a, a great Circle Vision production. It was a really, really big show, uh, very expensive, probably the most expensive Circle Vision movie ever made. And
0: um, I'm not surprised was, because you guys go through, like, different time eras from, you know, the oh, Jurassic yeah. era to, to Mozart's time. <laughs> it was just like, wow, because you're getting all these costumes. Of course, it's 360, so it's even more work to actually have a, a full set
1: oh yeah, and and because it's 360, the the kinds of things that you would normally do on a movie, um, in terms of say lighting, uh, become just so much harder because you can't, you know it's very hard to find places to hide a camera or hide the, the lights from the camera when you've got uh, you know like, like with the Mozart scene, you know it, it, the place is, first of all, it's full of mirrors. You know, there's that's just you know point, everywhere yeah. you look, there are mirrors. And then on <laughs> top of that, you know, you've got the camera that's moving from room to room. So you know, trying to find places to hide the lights was very, very difficult. Um, and it took us the better part of a week just to light that scene. And uh, we had these enormous candelabras. We had 150 people that were dancing the minuet, and they had to be trained and costumed and wigged and and you know all of that stuff. Well, they're dancing under these, these chandeliers, and we replaced all the candles with what you typically do for the movies is you don't use regular candles. You use you know, either what are double wick or triple wick candles, and it means that, that you know, there's actually three flames together with that candle. and So it's, it burns much brighter. It shows up on film, but it also burns three times as fast. And what that does is it, it, you know, and and when you've got a whole chandelier full of them, let alone a whole room full of them, plus the movie lights, everything is melting. It's just, you know, I mean, you can practically watch the candles burning down. And you've got all these dancers underneath it, and they're all getting wax dripped on them. And there were, the the smoke that would fill the room was such that we had these enormous fans with big uh, hoses that were out of sight, that we would turn on at the end. You know, as soon as we'd stop filming, we'd turn on these things and try to just suck all the smoke that was in there out of the room. And it was, you know, it was a, you know, I don't want to say it was dangerous, but we were very much aware that, you know, there was obviously fire hazard here. We had 14 French firefighters dressed in costume in the scene, scattered throughout. So that, I mean it wasn't like, you know, we had the fire truck standing by outside the chateau. The firefighters were actually in the scene Oh, extras. my goodness. Yeah.
0: <laughs> wow. That that's very, very that's smart thinking though.
1: <laughs> uh, well, it's what you have to do, you know.
0: I was actually watching it again, and then I saw the mirror scene, and I thought it was really clever how you actually made sure that the uh, camera turned so the machine, uh, Nine-Eye as they called her, uh, would Mm -hmm. see herself in the mirror. So that must have been, um, was that just the animation department filling her in No,
1: no. We actually filmed that live during the take. And it was, uh, that part of it was probably, that, that one scene was probably the hardest scene I have ever done, whether it's circle vision or a feature film or TV, that one scene was the toughest because, well, just for starters, um, you know, they said the, there was the lighting and, and, you know, just so many costumes and it was a very long scene. And, um, at one point, Michael Eisner had, we were having a pre, pre-production meeting and he just sort of threw this out. He said hey, wouldn't it be cool if Nine-Eye sees herself in a mirror? And, you know, it was like, uh, you know, what do you, what do you tell the big boss? And I just said, oh, okay, well, we'll find a way to do that. And what we ended up having to do was very, very complicated because, of course, Nine-Eye is, is, was a character that was only going to really exist in the theater. Yes. And, you know, it was going to be an animatronic, you know, robot in the theater. Well, they hadn't built her yet. We're making the movie; they're still building the robots. Oh my
0: goodness!
1: Because Nine-Eye is, you know, is is this imaginary character, but we're a camera. We're, you know, we're a camera crew, and the camera can't drive past a mirror and see itself and the crew and everything else. So what we ended up doing was, in that hallway, when she, when she goes by, um, the camera goes by what looks like a mirror but it's in fact a window into another room that we built and in that room we had a nine eye model that had to pass by at the same time so that was very very difficult to coordinate and one of the problems was that when i went to the when i finally figured out how we could do this i went to the people that were building nine eye and i said i you know i've got to have a model we're filming in france we need to do this scene and such and such a date and they said oh we're not done yet we you know we haven't finished and I said, I need something. I've got to be able to film it. And so they did a mock-up for me of what they thought she was going to, what the final design would be. Oh, no. And, yeah, and, and you know, with the, the paint and, and, and everything. And so they made me a nine-eye that would only do what it needed to do for this shot. And, you know, we shipped that to Europe and, and did the the whole scene. And, it, and, you know, it worked out. But it was... Uh, That was a really, really tough scene to do. You know, one of the other complications for that scene is that we were filming at a place called Chantilly, which is a beautiful chateau. And uh, it's, you know, it's very, very old. Uh, And the wood floor, it's, it's a parquet floor. It's beautiful, absolutely beautiful. But it's, you roll a camera across it and, you know, it's like being out at sea you know it's just rocking and rolling and you know it's not stable it's not flat it's just because the wood has warped over the years and you know there's there's nothing you can do about that it's just it's very uns uh you know uh, uneven so typically what we do for circle vision shots is we you know if that's the case we have two choices we either put down uh our own flat floor on top and um you know, the the camera is rolling across this, you know, big plywood sheets or whatever, or you put down dolly track. And the problem with that was that the camera was going to have to travel from one room past that mirror and down into another room. And if we had used, you know, either plywood flooring or if we had used um, dolly track, at one end or the other, you'd be able to see the track you'd be able to look in the opposite direction and see the track. So normally when we do dolly shots for circle vision, the length of the track is decided by you know, the lens height and, and you know, so that you don't see the track. You don't want to go all the way to the far end of the track and be able to see it, see the other end of it uh, coming into the shot. And so it, it was always a, a struggle to find ways to hide that. And it usually meant we could only dolly maybe 10, 12 feet safely Um, But in this case, we had to go like 15 or 16 feet, and that meant we were going to see it. So what the the crew did that was ingenious was they built a new floor, and they made it look like parquet, and they had to blend it in at each end with the real parquet floor so that you don't notice it. You know, part of, of making films for Disney theme parks it's, it's a very different process than if you're making you know, a TV show or, or even a feature film. You, you, just, you have to assume these films will be seen by some people hundreds of times. And, and you know, that really is the case. And, and so it has to look good in every frame, every corner. Um, you know, we, we work to a very, very high degree of detail on these shots. Um, you know, and there are many, many takes that we've had to throw away because there was something bad in, you know, even a back camera. And you can't mix and match. You can't use most of the cameras from one scene and some of the cameras from something else. With Circle Vision, it has to be one, you know, continuous take. So if there's something bad in the back, you do it again. And uh, it, so it's a very time-consuming process. And like I said, we're very detail-oriented about stuff like that.
0: I really do miss it. I I um I'm hoping that Disney brings something like that back to the parks because it's just fun to see um to see historical figures travel back in time. Jules Verne was having a but has, was having a fun time. <laughs> yeah, he sure was. So before Timekeeper, around 1988, you directed a film called Cheetah for the Disney Company, about mm-hmm. an American family living in Kenya, adopting a cheetah, and the cheetah is unfortunately uh, kidnapped by poachers. Um, so before it's too late, the family sets off to save this cheetah. So this project is. Different from any other Disney films that we just discussed, uh, animals were a part of this cast this time around, and um, and and there was no uh, Circle Vision three sixty camera to be found.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, right. um,
0: what, was this your first time directing a story rather than a documentary?
1: Uh, yeah, it was. Uh, the uh, you know it was a it was a regular you know feature film, and and uh, because it was the first time. For me to do a feature film, I, you know, I, I ignored all the historic evidence that says don't do movies about kids and animals. But you know, I said sure, let's do that and let's do it in Africa. It, you know, it was not an easy production because we were, uh, we were living, as, as the British say, under canvas, which means we, you know, we basically set up a safari camp and everybody was living in a tent, and uh, um, we would you know we were in a in a game area and so at night the animals would come around and they you know it was like stay in your tent <laughs> because that could be a you know a hippo or something wandering around It would come up out of the lake and and uh wander through the camp and so it was uh it was pretty exciting it was uh you know it was very tough to find the the african boy that uh that's the third character in the in the movie uh, morogo and um we were looking through, you know, in Nairobi for actors. We were looking in London. We were looking in New York and Los Angeles. And for a while there, we were getting kind of desperate. And we would look for, uh, actors, maybe, you know, like a, like an ambassador's son from an African country in, in Washington, DC. We were looking everywhere for somebody to do this. And in one of the casting sessions that I did in, um, In Nairobi, we had this this one kid come in to to interview, uh, you know, to to, uh, do a little, you know, uh, audition for the film. And uh, it was okay. Uh, You know, not great. He was okay. But he had this brother that was waiting out front for him. And I saw the kid, and he just had this wonderful smile. And I said, Well, you know, did you come to read? Are, you know, are you part? And, it, and he was so shy, he could barely speak. And he said, Oh, well, no. Uh, and I said, Well, why don't you come on in? And I brought him in, and he, he, you know, he hadn't been prepared for it. He didn't have anything, you know, memorized. And I didn't even have him read any of the lines. I just, I had a little video camera, and I shot some footage of him. It, it, you know, less than a minute of this kid just talking on camera. Now you just talk about his life and what he was doing and, you know, whatever. And he just seemed really kind of bright and sharp and, and, you know, seemed really good. Well, that sort of went by the wayside and and we're looking all over the world for somebody to play this part and we're getting closer and closer to the start date and the studio asked me, they said, well, you know, what are we going to do? We don't We don't have a Morogo yet. And I said, you know, there's this one kid that I kind of like, that I think I could work with. And I said, well, what have you got? Well, you know, show us. And and I showed him this little videotape. And they went, oh, my God, what a great smile. Oh, he's, you know, he's got so much personality. But they didn't hear him read any of the lines because I'd never, you know, shot that with him. And so as it turns out, that kid and, and his brother – um they had an uncle who was an actor, and he wasn't my first choice for the dad, for, the, for Morogo's father. I had another actor in mind, and I was thinking of this guy for something else. And I said, here's what I would propose. Let's cast this kid as Morogo, and I'm going to cast his uncle to play his father. Wow. Because he's a stage actor, and the, the father was you know quite experienced. And I said, he can take the kid under his wing, run lines with him at night. You know, they shared a tent in, the, in, the, in our little safari camp, and it worked out great. It was, it was terrific. And uh, the other day, I happened to put up the, um, the trailer for Cheetah up on YouTube. I just thought, oh, you know, here's this little thing. I'll just stick it up there, whatever. And uh, after a, a month or so, I get this, this note, a little comment on the site and somebody said oh thank you for posting the trailer for cheetah you know that was that was such a special time in my life and i'm i was you know that was it just made me so happy to see that and it was signed by, it was the kid from oh my goodness yeah wow. and he had uh so we've been in we've been in communication now and he's He's in his 30s, he's married, you know, he went to college in the U.S. And uh, I'd like to get back together with him. But it was it was great times.
0: There have been some rumors online and, and, you know, some talk that the Disney company might want to film another Circle Vision 360 for the theme parks. Um, And if they and and if they you know, if this rumor did come to be true, would you be interested um, if asked to help out with the film?
1: Oh sure, uh, uh, you know I'd, I'd love to do another one. That's uh, but I know that these kinds of things are decisions that get made at a very very high level when they're planning a park, and even when they're talking to you know about where they might put a park, and you know the over the years uh, Walt well, Disney Imagineering has had they they just have an enormous catalog of of things that they've done some very successful projects that they've done over over time and when they go into a country that, that you know where they talk about putting in a theme park they can draw on all of those things and say mm-hmm. one of these two of those you know and uh, and it really is uh, you know it's it's not oh hey here's an idea for a circle vision movie and and disney goes great let's go make that and we've got a place for it 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 sort of works the other way around um, that they have a theme park and as they decide what kinds of attractions they want to put into it um, they, you know, that that's when a uh, decision gets made about the need for a particular film or, uh, you know, some other kind of entertainment, and so you know it, that's that's part of the process. And and I know from my dealings with the Walt Disney Imagineering that one of the decisions that gets made, uh, or or part of the decision-making process, involves um, you know each of these attractions can hold. So many people at yes. a time, mm-hmm. and so you you always have to be thinking in terms of how quickly can you turn, you know, how, what's the turnstile uh, rate for this particular attraction, and they need to look at that over the entire theme park. You know, you can't just have all sit down movies where you shut the door and, and it doesn't open again for 20 minutes. Um, you know, whereas a ride like an Indiana Jones or something, they know that. You know, they can get so many people through per hour because it's a, a continuous flow, you know, like Pirates of the Caribbean. Um, and and that's very, very important in the design of a theme park. You've, you've got to account for all of those uh, rides and how they interact and how they work together. So um, that's why it's a very, very high-level decision as to whether or not they you know, they would even do a Circle Vision movie.
0: So I have uh, three fun questions I always say for the end for all of my guests. The Donald, Goofy, and Mickey questions. So all right. the, the first one is the Donald one. As a child, what Disney film would you always like to watch over and over and over again?
1: Pinocchio. One of the darkest Disney films. Got some adult material in it, even though it's a cartoon and... Uh, you know, it's just—it's not all sweetness and light. It's uh, you know, and and there's some stuff in there that's the stuff of nightmares.
0: So our goofy question: What Disney character do you think would be your best friend if you met them in person?
1: Hmm. Well, I'll tell you the the ones that I wish could be my friend. Uh, it is—it's not a single character, but it's but they're always treated as if it's a single character, and that's Huey, Dewey, and Louie. And and I I relate to them I re, you know I, as a kid I I loved the uh, Uncle Scrooge adventures that you know that they would all go on together.
0: Oh, the Ducktales. Yeah.
1: Oh yes. And uh, <laughs> and one of the things that I that I that I loved from the old the old Uncle Scrooge comic books was that the 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 Huey Dewey and Louie always had the ultimate answer for anything. <laughs> could be found in the Junior Woodchuck Manual. And they always had it with them. And, you know, if there was some obscure piece of information that they ever needed, they would say, well, let's just look it up in the Junior Woodchuck Manual. And it was this little book that they would carry with them, and you know, they'd look it up, and they'd go, oh, here's the answer. Well, my wife and I refer to the Internet as the Junior Woodchuck Manual, because uh, we're always using it to look up whatever we need. So
0: our Mickey question, here we go. If I asked you to name any Disney song at this very moment, what immediately comes to your mind?
1: Well, When You Wish Upon a Star has always been special for me. And um, I don't know why, but that, that song seems to pop up for me in, at odd times and places, and it's just a reminder of how cool it is to work for Disney. Um when I was doing wonders of china there 's a scene in there, and I know you you didn 't see that particular one, but there 's a scene in there where we did uh we were on stage with the Peking Opera doing a scene from the Monkey King, which is you know all this you know wonderful costuming and acrobatics and and stuff and and we filmed this in China, and I needed to record the audio of these singers myself and then play it back and record it with another recorder when we were filming and this is how we were going to be able to sync it all up and so it was a a kind of a sound problem that we had and it was sort of unique in that um you know today i would have it recorded in china and it would be no big deal but i I needed in those days going back into china to be able to be self-contained I had to have every piece of equipment with me, and and so I explained my situation, what I needed, and I explained it to the sound department, and they said, "Oh, we'll set it up for you. We know exactly what you need, and so we'll set it up. Come by the sound department." And in those days, the sound department and everything there was really funky. It, you know, I mean, it looked it looked like at any minute Walt Disney could walk in. It was just all old-fashioned, and all these old guys that all worked with Walt and. And, you know, it's very, very much like the, you know, the old days. So I I come walking in and, um, and they've got these two tape recorders set up. And they said, we, we put a tape on here uh, to just play, to show you how it works. And it's like, oh, okay, great. And so they turn on this tape and it's Jiminy Cricket singing When You Wish Upon a Star.
0: Oh my goodness.
1: Yeah. And it was like. You know, on the one hand, you're, you know, my, my reaction is, well, of course, this is exactly what you would find lying around in the sound department at Disney in <laughs> this, you know, but, it, uh, you know, on the other hand, I just melted. It was just like, oh my God, I am now really making a movie for Disney. If, you know, this is, this is, because it it, 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 it you know, it's, it, it's a song for me that just, just goes you know, right into your heart as soon as you hear it. And, and because it, you know, and it wasn't just like an old instrumental version or something. It's like, no, this was from the movie. Wow. So it's the original recording, it's like, oh my goodness.
0: Thank you so much, Jeff, for coming on the show. It was such a pleasure talking to you, and I'm sure listeners would love to check out your YouTube channel. Just
1: search my name and you'll, you'll find my channel.
0: And do you have any other projects that you're working on that listeners can look forward to uh, seeing anytime soon?
1: Well, uh, I've uh, written uh, a kid's movie, a kid's sci-fi movie that uh, we're hoping to shoot this summer up in Portland. So um, it's uh, it's not for Disney, but I would definitely call it Disney-esque. <laughs> so uh, we'll see how that goes. It's called Blue Light.
0: Oh wonderful. Well we will promote and, uh, it and send it out to our listeners so they can see it. That would be great.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And so again, thank you so much, Jeff, so much for your time.
1: Thank you, Jamie. Okay, show's over. Get out of here, you little numbskulls. I love you. Thank you for coming today. Get out!